0: Today's show is sponsored by Spot from NetApp, the cloud automation platform that makes it easy to deliver continuously optimized infrastructure at the lowest possible cost. Spot helps customers get the most out of their cloud investments by automating cloud infrastructure to ensure performance, reduce complexity, and optimize cost. Their machine learning and automation scale to exactly meet application needs using the most efficient mix of instances and pricing models, eliminating the risks of over-provisioning and cloud waste. Best of all, their software works with leading cloud platforms, services, and tools so that you can simplify and automate your cloud infrastructure wherever your workloads and applications run and however you run them. Discover how leading companies from cloud-native startups to global enterprises are automating, simplifying, and optimizing their cloud infrastructure with Spot by NetApp. Check them out at spot.io slash cloudcast where you can find more information, quest a demo, or even start a free trial. That's spot.io slash cloudcast. Cloudcast Media presents from the massive studios in Raleigh, North Carolina. This is the Cloudcast with Aaron Delb and Brian Gracely, bringing you the best of cloud computing from around the world. Good morning, good evening, wherever you are. Welcome back to the Cloudcast. We are coming to you live from the massive Cloudcast studios here in Raleigh, North Carolina. As we begin to wrap up the month of August, kids are starting to go back to school around the world, or at least in many places. And uh, like in my case, I think it's been more than 500 days. I think it's been 520-ish days since my children uh, went back to physical school. So uh, amazing that Not only did it take that long for them to get back to physical school after basically missing a year and a half, um, but that we're still somehow in the middle of this crazy pandemic. So take care of each other. Please do what you have to do to help uh, flatten the curve 500 and some odd days into this unbelievable pandemic. I'm going to... Kind of be short and sweet with this week's Cloud News of the Week. There's some interesting stories, but uh, we have a really, really interesting interview this week, and uh, and I want to make sure that you know the overall time of the show doesn't run run too, too too long. So I'm not going to take uh, too long here on Cloud News of the Week. Going to hit on a couple of things. Uh, the folks from Postman, who are very well-known for their API gateways and API clients, uh, took a Series D round of funding, $225 million at a $5.6 billion valuation. So we are uh, sort of back into... You know, another phase of obviously developers being really, really important uh, and APIs being very, very important. So congratulations to the team at Postman. Um you know, you've heard me mention before Gracely's theorem, which is uh, there are very few new ideas in technology. There's only uh, faster bandwidth and lower uh, price chips uh, to drive the economic model down. Um, and no greater uh, definition of that than Facebook announcing what I'm going to call Second Life 2.0, which is their virtual reality Facebook horizon workrooms, uh, a VR metaverse. Um, obviously, VR has come a long way. We haven't covered it a whole lot on this show because it feels like it's mostly a consumer technology, but I think we're beginning to see more and more uh, business usage for VR and uh, Facebook kind of following up on everybody being home and, and doing meetings quite a bit and, and the world kind of trying to figure out whether or not we're going to return to work, uh, w- whether that's something that'll happen in mass or won't happen in mass, and so Facebook launched uh, this new VR thing. They had uh, obviously done a lot of work with Oculus, and uh, but it's interesting to sort of see it, um, especially for those who maybe weren't around for Second Life and some of the other immersive technologies from, geez, it's been 15 years, and in 15 years, a lot of people forget uh, their history or they weren't a part of the history, so something to take a look at. It'll be interesting, um, really, really <laughs> going to be a, a steep road to climb for Facebook to, uh, to get into the enterprise given some of the other challenges they have in terms of uh, uh, you know, just other, other challenges they have with people's uh, perspective on Facebook and whether or not enterprises want people giving up their Facebook accounts and sort of overlapping their personal and, and business lives. Um, third thing on the list, uh, Gartner, uh, who often releases what they call their magic quadrants also once a year releases their Gartner hype cycle for emerging technologies. And so, uh, this is interesting. If you've seen the normal Gartner sort of curve uh, that often comes out, uh, you probably heard terms like, um, Trough of disillusionment and uh, and hype cycle. NFTs are now at the very top of the uh, emerging technologies hype cycle. Uh, lots of stuff that's on the way up is uh, various forms of AI, sort of advancements in AI. So if you're into sort of what uh, what could be happening over the next two to ten years, uh, it's worth maybe taking a look. Lots of just dots uh, on a on a chart, uh, but a lot of times people get excited about this, especially if you're looking for maybe long-term investment or just you know um, some some fingers in the air wondering you know where the world may go technology-wise. And the last thing I've got on my list, uh, there's a gentleman named Matt Stein, and for those of you who have been around the Cloud Foundry community or the Spring uh, Java community for a long time, you know Matt. Uh, Matt spent a lot of time at Pivotal, uh, you know, was one of the product managers and uh, one of the um, sort of lead developer evangelists as well, I believe. I may have his title wrong. Uh, but Matt has since moved on. He's, he's working in the financial services industry now, um, knows his stuff, knows all about, you know, building software, shipping software. And he's been doing a really interesting, what he's calling 30 for 30 journey, uh, and you know he's sort of playing off this thirty for thirty thing that ESPN has done for a long time, uh, sort of thirty stories in thirty days. Matt's writing a really interesting series of blog posts all about um, the challenges, the trials and tribulations, uh, successes, the best tips. For how to ship software, um, which is a thing that I know is near and dear to his heart, um, and uh, really an interesting series. So, if you get a chance, take a look at it. It's in the show notes under Cloud News of the Week. Um, and Matt's somebody who has been, you know, not only living with this, um, you know, but also uh, really, really passionate about it. For so, for those of you that are that are in that space, uh, you know, uh, CI and CD and shipping software and wanting to make your your business and your development teams more efficient, definitely go take a look at uh, at that article that or a series of articles that he's written thirty in thirty days. So, with that, I'm going to wrap it up. Like I said, we have a really, really interesting interesting interview coming up after the break, Um, kind of an interesting crossover between somebody who has very much lived uh, a lot of interesting technology, built a lot of interesting technology, and is now helping to uh, sort of fund and find the next generation of it, but really uh, has some interesting, interesting insights into how do you go about building those teams and finding the right people. So we'll get to that right after the break. Today's show is brought to you by CBT Nuggets. You know how much we value ongoing education on the Cloudcast. And CBT Nuggets is exactly what Aaron and I wish we had when we were trying to get our certification early in our careers. CBT Nuggets is all about bringing a personalized touch to learning about cloud computing, virtualization, networking, DevOps, and much, much more. Whether it's their hands-on labs with personalized coaching or the online chat functions that come up with every instructor-led course, CBT Nuggets team of experts is always there to help you get the most from your training and your PASA certification can check it all out at cbtnuggets.com cloudcast and sign up for a free trial. You get access to the full catalog of great training, including virtual labs, quizzes, and other premium features completely free for the first seven days. That's cbtnuggets.com slash cloudcast. And we're back. And folks, today we're going to do something a little bit different. Um, obviously, what most people turn in tune into the show for is, you know, they're looking to to learn about our industry. They're looking to learn about technology. And we're very fortunate to to get a lot of really great guests that that uh, you know bless us with uh, their expertise, their experience, and their willingness to share. And today we're not going to talk so much about uh, a given technology or given technology trend, but really something that a lot of. Um, growing companies have to deal with, and a lot of things that um, you know companies wish they had some experience in. Because uh, when you're looking for certain roles, certain really important roles within your organization, um, you can't make mistakes, or you really want to avoid the things to do to, to make mistakes as much as possible. And um, today, we're really excited. Uh, Jason Warner, who is Managing Director at Redpoint Ventures and formerly uh, have held some really incredible engineering jobs, is going to join us today. Jason, welcome to the show. Great to have you on.
1: Thanks for having me, Brian.
0: Um, before we dive into this topic, uh, give us a little bit of your background, kind of some of the places you've been, uh, the, you know, the companies you've worked with uh, are going to be names that our audience is, is really familiar with, but give us a little bit of your background and and then ultimately what uh, what moved you from being on the product side, serv- you know, kind of cloud side to, uh, to moving over to Redpoint.
1: Sure. Um, great. So, yeah, um, I'm at Redpoint right now, managing director, um, that's a venture capital company, um, before that, I was CTO at GitHub for four years. I joined about two years pre-acquisition, and I was responsible for all aspects of product engineering, design, infrastructure, data, security, um, things like that. Yeah. Um, before that, I was similar role at Heroku, uh, which is a platform as a service which got acquired by Salesforce. And then before that, similar at Canonical, the people who make Ubuntu Linux, so i was directly responsible for ubuntu desktop phone and server for about 5 years.
0: Yeah, very very cool. You've uh you've had your hands in something that i would say probably i don't know, 50 60 70% of our audience probably deals with on a day-to-day basis. So very very cool. Um, the the origin of this show we were we were talking about it before we started was you had just sent out a tweet, you had um, i mean you've you've recently moved over to redpoint within the last, you know, within the last year, within the last few months and you sent out a sort of an uh, you know nothing tweet that said hey you know i'd love to do a podcast where i sort of share my knowledge of what it what you know what what's the thought process people might go through when hiring a vp of engineering and uh you know given that that's such a critical role uh, especially for companies that are growing but but also companies that are expanding i thought that'd be sort of a fun way you know throw sort of a fun topic for us today and uh, i'm going to give you lots and lots of leeway to share your knowledge but um let's let's kind of talk about why is that such an important hire, whether it's for a really early stage company or even a company that's, you know, growing, you know, had a great first product and maybe is looking to to build a second product. Like why is that role often talked about? So with so much reverence that you just have to get it right.
1: So I think there's a couple of things that all play into that specific role, which are uh, one, most companies when they are founded have some sort of a technical member of the founding team so let's just call that person CTO here going forward. And that person largely is hands-on coding in the early days. And then, you know, mostly, um, hands-on coding at some point and then less hands-on coding. And then they start to realize that that's not what they do well. Right. Um, but by that point, the company is probably itself doing well. If they've gotten to that realization, they've raised some money or they've got a product in market. They've got a, you know, decently sized team somewhere. Um, And so that becomes an issue. Um, that person in the, in the technical seat CTO seat might not have the skills or desire to be the VP of engineer. That's one. Yep. the second is as most companies grow and actually achieve some success, they slow down and they slow down for a variety of reasons, but a lot of the quick fix for this is higher VP of engineering. Um, and that we can get into that topic too. Um, but then the third, I think, is there's only a couple of positions in the company outside of the founding team that are what I would call high leverage positions. And I don't think any larger in the early formation of a company than VP of engineering. Because if you're going to classically structure the, the company, the VP of engineering is probably going to have the most headcount in the company up until you are uh, almost probably a public company and you have a sales team that would match the size. Um, but if you think about it from that perspective, nobody has more influence over the company and day-to-day operations, week to week, or month to month, than the VP of Engineering.
0: Yeah, no, I would, I would completely agree. I think you know the the number of things that they can influence, whether it's you know technology decisions and architecture, uh, you know the culture of uh, you know how fast you build or how you work with product management, or just um, you know do you. Do you create a culture that's going to in, in, enhance or en- excite new people to want to come work for you? Yeah, it's uh, you know if, as as a as a technology company, if that's what you're building, or even you know even if you're I guess everything these days, yeah, you're right. Yeah. That that role um, is so in the middle of everything that uh, you have to really get it right. Now, does that well, and, go
1: ahead? I was to say one other thing there too is that. The high leverage positions are high leverage for a reason, but the, what people tend not to think about with high leverage positions is how they go right, but what happens if they go wrong? Right. And in a VP of engineering or the first product manager or second product manager or head of product eventually, if things go wrong, they, they can be devastating for the company, not just incrementally bad, but devastating.
0: Right. And- and how do you think about it? I mean you you've been at both uh, you know large growth companies but now your focus is on you know helping small companies become large companies. Does does the perspective change? Does I don't know the the influence level, the leverage level change if we're talking about the first VP of engineering or you know the second or third or fourth, right? Somebody who has, you know, a large sphere of influence over a lot of engineering, do, do you think about it differently or does it tend to just be you know, if we get it right the first time, hopefully we can, you know, get it right the second time.
1: So it's a very interesting question. I think that the the way to answer this one would be uh, age-dependent to a degree. So a VP of engineering you're gonna hire for a 50-person company will look very different than if you're going to hire the prime engineering leader for a 500- or 1,000-person company, obviously. Um, and each one of those has a different a degree of difficulty associated with it. What I tend to think about when you're hiring your very first VP of engineering is it's actually lower stakes, in my opinion, than some others uh, hiring later, though um, it's setting precedent. Yeah. And whenever you're setting precedent, you obviously want to get it correct. But what you should not be optimizing for is when you're a 5,000 person company, is this the person that is also going to be in that same seat? Because the answer to that question is likely no, no matter what, just from a time horizon perspective, skill set perspective, or even desire perspective, what you should be answering is whether or not this person um, can take us from, let's say, the 10, 20, 50 people to the 100, 200, 500 perspective, or put us on a track to get that. And they themselves, they showed an aptitude and ability and desire to grow and learn along the way themselves.
0: Yep. Yeah. No, it makes, makes sense. Um, I, I want to tap into a little bit of your experience. What what's you know at a, at a high level, what's sort of the the process or you know the the checklist? How how do you do you start from saying okay, we've we've reached a point where we think we need to make this higher. Um, you know, it makes business sense. It makes organizational sense. What's sort of the process you then go through to figure out okay, how do I make a list of candidates? How do I you know create a list of uh, criteria that are the most important things to me. Like what kind of walk me through, you know, how you've thought about that process in the past.
1: Sure. So the classic answer to this would be write A job description, hire a recruiter. Yeah. Um, and yes, those are useful activities though. I don't think that they they tell the full story about what you're after. And in a practice I've taken to recently, um, in the past two years or so is what I will do for any job, um, that I'm a role that I'm hiring for at the particularly high level is is, as corny as this will sound, is I write the two year exceeds expectation performance review. Okay. And the reason why I do that is because you get pretty specific in there about where you think you need to be in two years and what they did for you. So, you know, we're hiring um, a VP of security and you write down that, you know, we stopped a bunch of um, bots from being activated on the platform. We, you know, cut down on the abuse vectors. We, um, completely defended against, you know, two nation state attacks or a DDoS or some sort of a, you know, SIM exchange uh, hack. You you get the idea, but you're starting to write these things down and they're showing a lot of work um, activities that would need to get done. You would also put in there and we grew the team by X amount and we were able to handle this. And so you, you really get a handle for what this person or this role will be doing. And that's a very good conversation to have with potential candidates. Job descriptions, to be blunt, or copy-pasted from the web. Most oh, people right. don't write job descriptions from hand anymore. Right. And this is an actual activity that you have to write by hand. And that's the usefulness of it, is that you have to get explicit about it. Yeah. So I find right. it to be a much more valuable tool than the job descriptions themselves.
0: Yeah, um, and it sort of leverages the sort of work-backwards mindset, yes. right? like r- write the headline first, if you will. or, or- That's exactly right.
1: That's ex- and and the, the intent there was to find someone analogous in that same way. The other side of it for getting going too is, again, in a work backwards sort of way is to say where the company or the department or the blah is supposed to be in some time horizon. And if you have a strong enough understanding yourself of what that looks like, you, you can almost picture the candidate profile in your head too. Then you just have to write that down and be really crisp and clear about what the rest of the organization has to, to align on too. And this is actually where I think most role hiring goes wrong. Is there the organization is not aligned on what the organization needs. So they might think that they need a VP of engineering that is hyper technical, or they need a VP of engineering that is 100% empathy focused or any of those sorts of things. And I'm not, this is not the point in the podcast for me to give my own opinion on those. But I would say, if you're not aligned, you're going to have a hard time hiring.
0: Right, right, right. Yeah, no, it makes, it makes a ton of sense. I, how do you so so like you said sort of you sort of write the review you write the headline you're working backwards, um, the process moves along you you kind of filter through and you find I don't know a half dozen candidates or you know three or four whatever whatever it boils down to how do you kind of go through because a lot of times you know just like people will will cut and paste the job. Uh, you know, requirements, they'll also, you know, you may look at resumes, and you go, boy, these these look a lot the same. Like, how do you how do you start evaluating, uh, like, for example, uh, a lot of times, if you're interviewing with Google, or Amazon, or, or any large size company, they'll kind of go, okay, well, you did this, and you did this, or at least this is on your resume. And they'll kind of go, but how much did you do, right? Versus, okay, your company did that, you were part of that team. How much did you do? Like, how, how do you sort of sort through the did this person do this? You know, were they really yeah. responsible for driving it versus like, hey, they were part of the team and the team won the championship, but they were, you know, they were the relief <laughs> pitcher. They were the second baseman. They didn't, you know, that type of thing. How do you sort through that?
1: Yeah. So two things here. One is uh, all resumes are going to look the same, I think, too, which is just the nature of the game these days. So you have to get to this point in the conversation, the, the interview um, and the conversation, so uh, you're exactly right. You don't want to, there, there, there are plenty of good leaders out there that were part of a rising tide, but what you're actually after, if you're trying to find what I call a, uh, you know, a trajectory changer or a curve bender, you're trying to find somebody who was responsible for that in one way, shape or form. Um, they don't need to be ultimately the entire story, but they needed to have been a major portion of that story. And so to get to that, it's obviously going to be part of the, the conversation And the questions are all about, you know, uh, talk me through the projects, talk me through the the organizational structures or the organizational alignment or any of those things, but walk me through the way in which you view the world, your principles, your practices, the things you're optimizing for, why was that successful, why questions are the the easiest way to get to the root um, and answer the one question you do want to answer, which is, was this person responsible or was this person uh, a participant? And, um, you know, why questions reveal a lot yeah. and the, you know, the classic, it depends answer is usually the start of the answer, but a lot of fake, uh, fakely credentialed people in the industry can say it depends because everyone knows you. That's the, the correct answer in most right. cases, right? It's what comes next. And that's why our, your job as the interviewer is to ask two or three follow-up questions and see what, um, to what depth they can get to.
0: Yeah no and that, and that makes sense i I mean to a certain extent, it feels like um you know obviously you've you've been in roles that that have been of significant scale of significant breadth and and obviously like you're you're kind of comparing them telling you their why versus you sort of having lived maybe a few years earlier, and you're kind of going, okay, that seems about right nope that's probably b s like that doesn't really happen that way and what what about what about a scenario where you're like we're we're trying to hire this person because we need to do something very different. Like, do you reach out to, to your peer networks and can kind of go like, Hey man, like I'm in over my head, but I know we need to do this. Like, do you find yourself in that situation or have you found yourself in that situation where that that role is going to help solve that?
1: Yes. So this would be, um, let me, let me step off the path for one second and I'll come right back, which would be this is that if you're, if you're good at your job in terms of finding people and talent, you can understand how it would look even in other industries that you're not um, deeply familiar with. Mm -hmm. Um, You just have to stay away from jargon and you have to stay away from some like deep, dark secrets of the industry. But if I were to be plopped into a professional football team and I were looking for coaches, I would understand to a degree what a quality leader might look like. Now, I don't know if they're good at their function. That's where I would have to rely on some experts, but I can tell you if this person's full full of crap or if they're, you know, in their way through the interview, or if they're just parroting what somebody else told them, um, because that's that's a universally applicable skill. Right? right. And so, if you can develop that, you can get through fifty percent of these conversations. The other fifty percent of when you need to rely on experts, you need to go and you need to get your an education yourself, so that you can at least sniff through. And the the easiest way for me to do this is to basically. Uh, um, analogous things. So let's say I was diving into you know, artificial intelligence 10 years ago, which is when I started to get into it uh, with others. Um, and I'm not an expert. It was never going to be my area of expertise, but I needed to know just enough to be able to be an executive. Yep. Um, so I needed to understand what terms meant in that domain to my domains, distributed systems or things of that nature from a technical perspective. And then once I understood some of that I was able to go read more on the topic and at least build up these things in my head that were, you know, they, they don't need to be a hundred percent true. They need to be directionally accurate. Once you have that base set of knowledge, you can get through probably another 20 to 25% of that. Then for the, the actual deep, dark technical competence, you need to rely on an expert. Yeah. And when you're relying on an expert, if you can pull them into the interview, that's fantastic because they're, they're a part of your company but your job now is to make sure that, that that expert has one thing on their mind do they have are they themselves a good judge and are good, are they a good arbiter of talent or a good judge of of technical competence um, so they they themselves might have a deep technical expertise but if they can't see it in others you don't want them in the interview but if they can then you've you've got that match made
0: yeah no i like i like that it it it's sort of a Somewhat of a layered approach, but it, it's a good way of thinking about. Okay, this much I can I can pull from my own background. This much I've got to do some homework, and this much, uh, you know, I, I've got to sort of reach outside my comfort zone. I like I like that framework of of kind of well,
1: thinking about it. And think about it this way: um, if you're really good, so if you're really good at at figuring out people, uh, which is what you're doing when you're interviewing to a sure. degree. You want to figure them out and then figure out their what they're saying is true, and that they can be backed up day to day. It's a, it's a pretty universally transferable skill. So a good, good example might be that it's very easy to suss out on Twitter these days who the shill accounts are or who the, the pomp and circumstance people are or who the, the loudmouth braggadocious type of know-nothings but have big followings are. They're pretty obvious. Right. But if you're 14 or 15 or 16, you, you don't have that, you've not refined that skill. And that's who a lot of these people kind of prey on. To to get that audience these days, but if you know it and you see it, it's obvious to a lot of us. It's kind of the same. You're using the same set of skills to to filter out that you know this tech luminary is actually an idiot and just like complete full of shit. But you get the idea.
0: Yeah. No, absolutely. It's uh, it's it's as if a magician had to do you know tricks in front of a bunch of other magicians. Uh, yeah, that's exactly
1: right, and that's why. By the way, that's also why, like in in Twitter uh, scenario, you never see them hanging around with. Industry experts—they've always got a very naive or younger or a less astute audience. Yep.
0: Yep. Absolutely. Um, I want to shift gears a little bit. Uh, you know, we we famously hear about engineering interviews and coding interviews and things. I, I doubt that probably happens a lot at the VP level. Um, but how do you tend to think about? It? I mean, we talked about it a little bit. You said, "Look, there's there's times when the thing you need is a is a very technical person. There's other times when you need somebody who's you know, a little more empathy driven, like how do you kind of try and figure those things out? Because, you know, like if I'm, if I'm VP of engineering, I have to be, you know, attuned to what's going on in the market. I have to be able to communicate with my product manager, whether that's just saying no to requests or whether it's time schedules, but I probably have to talk to customers. Like how do you, how do you suss out finding the right balance for, you know, the need of the job, but also the, the culture of the company?
1: Well, I think that the job is always uh, it's always the double side, two sides of the coin. So there is the people side and the product side. Yep. And because people make the product, and the product needs to be successful, so you can employ the people. Right. And so you can't divorce those two from each other. And I think that's actually one of the things that we've done poorly in the industry in the past ten years is we've gone overly oriented towards the people. And I'm just being really blunt here is that mm-hmm. we've lost sight of some of the product execution in the industry. Um, but that's a pendulum because it's a pendulum swing. And because that means that the previous 10 years before this period, we were way too focused on the product to burn people out. But the point of being a leader is that you actually achieve product success with the people and you build up the people so they have success in their career and they're using the product as a springboard. So the I famously say that if you're building a culture of an organization and you think culture is ping-pong tables, beanbag chairs and drinks in the fridge, you're missing the point. It's it's what you do, but it's also how you do it. And that's, they need to be married together because if you have major, major financial success, but everyone hates you along the way and is burned out, you're not really doing the job. You might have made a, a ton of money for yourself, for your company, but no one's going to hire you again. And you're not going to, your reputation is going to be garbage. Yeah. But on the other side, if you build the best organization in the world in terms of uh, culture and empathy and um, people orientation, but you never have success from a product perspective and ultimately a company perspective people are going to discount you for that lack of success and they're going to they're going to point to the culture
0: yeah yeah no that makes that makes a ton of sense and um yeah it's like you said you there are just like there can be people who are sort of fake in in their resume and their skills there's also there's also infinite numbers of ways to sort of you know for a few years make something look really great and under the surface it's you know you've you've you know hollowed out or just rotted something that that really needed to be stable. That's right. Um so in your role you like I, we've talked about you know you've been in both smaller companies, growing companies, you're yeah. now in a you know in a role to to help small companies. Like how do you maybe this is an experience question, maybe this is just a, a how you think about it question. You know at some point you go okay, we're going to hire this role. Um you know you assume there's probably some amount of other engineering talent within the organization because uh, you've you've built up that first product or it's the fifth product. How do you think about you know the decision of like should we be hiring internally uh, because obviously they know our company, they sort of know what we've done versus okay, we should consider external or do you not even sort of start with that mindset you're like i'm going to find the best person um, like or or how do you sort of think about navigating when it makes sense to hire internally or externally because obviously you know, they both have their their pros and cons as to, you know, what it will do for the next steps of the company.
1: Yeah, I, I default to trying to hire internally first. I think that it's usually a less um, wasteful, maybe it's not the word, but um, 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 there's less hiring internally. Yeah. And it's it already internally. Um, you get it wrong, internal hire, there's going to be a lot more broken glass. So you're going to want to look for people internally first, and the one of the things I I, I do recommend is you don't actually call it VP of engineering um, for quite some time too. You call it head of or lead or any one number of those things before you get to VP of engineering. And if you're going internally, you can get away with that for a long time. Yeah, because it, it just makes sense. You're if you're a team of ten people, you don't need a VP of engineering. You need a lead. And if you're a team of twenty people, you probably need two leads, not a VP of engineering still. What you actually need is a way to organize the days, the weeks, and the months, and to communicate status up and down and those things. The title is not going to bestow anyone any number of those abilities. Right. So if you're growing organically, it's probably better to to think about it that way. Um, The times to go external are obviously when the organization is tapped out um, or the role has gotten big enough. And you know, it can't be done by one one person. Mm, okay. You've got three people covering it. Yeah, And that's typically where you start to see people really reach for the VPs, which are you know somewhere probably around 30, 40, 50 people. Um, or uh, then you go SVP if you've got two VPs or something like that. And you know that's a couple hundred people.
0: Yeah. Okay. Um, now, we, we've, I've been sort of setting this up as sort of this journey, right? Like, why did we do it? What were we looking for? So let's assume we found the ideal candidate. They're ready to go. People internally have bought off with them. You know, everybody likes them. What are some of the things that you do as their leadership, right? So your CTO, your CEO, your whatever, your CFO or CO, like, what are some of the things you're doing to make them successful um, as they take on this bigger responsibility or they take on... You know certain amounts of uncertainty, because every time you're building something, there's a level of uncertainty. Like, What are some of the things you found that are helpful to do in that first you know, hundred days to make them be successful, give them a foundation to be successful?
1: Well, I think going back to that um, two-year performance review, uh, exceeds expectation performance review is a really good one, which is remind them what you're looking for a couple of years from now too, and make sure that they understand What it is in a work backwards scenario, um, if you're if you're building an engineering system and you say, hey, ultimately, five years from now, it needs to be able to handle these sorts of things. Many people can break that down to the point where they're saying, like, well, the next logical step from where we are right now would be to blah, you know, X, Y or Z. And what you're effectively doing is you're, you know, you're piecemealing the components apart in your head mentally and you're trying to de-risk certain aspects. And you're saying, well, the trickiest part of this is going to be this. So let's focus on that. And But the highest priority thing would be this. So we're going to, you know, paralyze those two efforts and, and answer a couple of questions. Gotcha. Not that it's similar organizationally. You know, you've got to, if you say that, you know, hey, five years from now, we want to be, we're going to be 500 people and we're only 10 right now. Well, you don't need to go put in the review process for five 500 people. But what you need to start thinking about is, okay, so Right now, we don't have any engineering ladders. We don't have any process. We don't have any role descriptions. So why don't we just say, like, right now, we're just gonna like on paper say we're gonna have senior eng and in um, and junior eng or something like that. Yeah. And just you just start, you know, iterating. There's actually a really interesting um, novel writing technique that I caught. Uh, uh, I learned about a while back. It's called the snowflake method for novel writing. Okay. And it was by this ex-physicist or a physicist who decided to write some science fiction novels. And the idea is essentially that you don't have the entire story fleshed out. But what you do is you start with um, a one-line description of the story. You then evolve that into a one-paragraph description of the story. And that evolves into a one-page overview. And then you iterate by doing character names and role. And then you take each character and you take it to a paragraph. Then you take each character and you take it to a page. Then you go back to the story and you take that one pager and you make it a five pager. And you get the idea. You're slowly building these things up. Yeah. And visually, um, what that looks like is you've got a triangle. But then you overlay another triangle on top of it, but just slightly offset. Then another triangle. Then another triangle. And then what you realize from a mathematical perspective, we're looking at like fractals all of a sudden. Yeah, And at the end of it, that's why it's called a snowflake. You start with a triangle, but you end up with a snowflake at the end. And that's your story. Building organizations is almost the exact same conceptual. You you don't do it all at once. You do it slowly over time and in iterations and you overlay them on top of each other.
0: Yeah. No, that that's interesting. I, I we we've I, I've seen that sort of similar kind of concept when we've done, you know, marketing messages and product rollouts. It's like, okay, what's the what's the ten word version of this? The twenty five version? The hundred yeah. word? And but it it is it 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 starts you to be very focused of like what exactly is this thing? And then it sort of focuses you to go, okay, tell me a little more, right? And then as you start to sort of tell yourself a little bit more, or you paint a bigger picture, you're sort of like, okay, does that still convey what we wanted to convey and that makes that makes a ton of sense um I, I'm curious and I don't know if you've run into this I, I assume having been at larger you know or successful companies for a while like not everything is is wine and roses right you go through periods where you're like man this this project this effort this code base is a mess um, have you ever run into situations where you bring somebody in <clears throat> and maybe you're bringing them in because somebody quit or you know it was the wrong personality or just you need something like is there a different thing that the leadership team above an engineer, an engineering need leads to do if they're bringing them into a mess? And I mean that in the context of like, you know, normally you might say, "Well, uh, you know, yes, I give you a two-year window." But you know, if you come into something that's essentially a rebuilding project, that year zero or year one is oftentimes like, I'm I'm doing a lot of cleaning out versus I'm doing a lot of building. Like, do, have you seen that before? Do you have any advice for folks that are? Bringing people into you know, yeah that I situation, that. you know, it's a bad situation. But like you're like that's that's our bad situation. It's just got to get fixed. Yeah,
1: I, that's a little bit what I became known for. In fact, that's what I walked into at GitHub. Okay. Um, and GitHub was a little bit more unique too because it had an uninvolved founder, the CEO at the time, just wasn't involved in the business. Mm, okay. So what? Um, but I was on the same page with all of the other executives, and so. This was interesting. GitHub's experience for me being brought in was we had a head of talent, a head of recruiting and um, a CFO and a head of sales who were very involved in the business. Mm-hmm. And they put together a packet for me on all the feedback from their organizations about the product engineering and executive organization at GitHub. And the head of talent in HR, she put it together for me and gave it to me as like my onboarding. And I got it two weeks ahead of time. I walked through it. I also had an onboarding buddy who walked me through all the different departments and everything like that. And it was very clear from the outside and inside during the interview process and plus that with my interviews with all the different organizations. And then when I got involved inside the um, GitHub, I went and talked to every department and every director in every department. I did a lot of this. And I was able to triangulate themes. And I relayed them back to the organization that I heard them. And everyone was on the same page. So I just said, here's what I plan to do in the first 30, the 60, and then the 90 days. And I reviewed it every week at exec staff with them. And I think it applies. If I were in the same scenario as a CEO and I was bringing somebody who was going to clean up a mess, I would say the thing I care about um, over this time horizon is this. And I, and I would think that you know what I'd like to see is in the 30, 60, 90s kind of approach, this is what I would recommend you do. Um, and, but I would love to see the answers to the following sets of questions.
0: Yeah. No, and I think that makes, I mean, it makes a ton of sense. Obviously there's, you've got to find some level of sort of shared responsibility because, you know, you walked into something, it was created before you. But uh, I think the other part that, that you highlight, which is really important is, you know, that level of, okay, we, we, we all got to a common set of words, right? We got to a common set of problems. We all understand it from the same perspective you're going to be real transparent about frequent communication and, and you break it down into small enough chunks such that, you know, you don't get into that, uh, that problem where people go a billion, that seems like a really big number. How are you ever going to get there? And you're like, well, we're going to get there by getting to one and then two and then 10 and a hundred. And, um, yeah, no, that's, that's very, very good advice.
1: I think it's, it's really important too to have the same expectations and that's why you have to lay them out. So in that 30, 60, 90 approach, I mentioned, to um, the entire exec staff, as well as my staff. At, um, I guess when I joined, I said, hey, I'm going to take a very intentional approach, which is for 30 days, it's the listening tour, uh, replaying back all the notes that I've heard, et cetera, et cetera. 60, we'll be slowly implementing a couple of different things, making um, some key decisions if we need to or undoing or stopping. And then 90 is when we would start to make um, either wholesale changes that we need to or some other you know, larger, more yeah. invasive changes. But what happens naturally is people get impatient. Yeah. They, they forget that you've only been there for two weeks. So that's why constant communication is really important. Yep. And a more structured, more disciplined, kind of more experienced exec team will understand this. And a less experienced uh, across the board will not. And they want to see change happening faster. That's why you have to be constant communication. Yep. And just understand too that, hey, sometimes it changes on the candidate on the fly too. And they you might have to just roll with it. Right,
0: right. Yeah, no, absolutely. Uh, I want to ask one last question. I want to be conscious of your time. Um, let's take the flip side of this. You are, you know, somebody Somebody comes to you and says, hey, Jason, I'm, I'm thinking about interviewing for this VP of engineering job. You know me, you know my background. Like, what advice do you have such that, that I shine, that, that my best stuff comes forward, that I don't, you know, waste time with stuff that, you know, doesn't doesn't meet what they're looking for? What, what what sort of advice do you give to somebody, whether it's, you know, uh, somebody who's kind of currently in a, in a role and looking to, to move to a different company, a new thing, or even like, Hey, I'm a senior director. I want to prove to them that I'm capable of that, but I don't have the title yet. Any advice you might have for somebody?
1: So going back to the earlier, um, note about whether or not someone was responsible or, or party of almost everybody is going to be a member of or a participant of some some degree of success if they're going to have future success in their career. Right. So you can never really lay claim to I was responsible for something um, entirely for an organization. But you can lay claim to I was responsible for something inside of your purview mm-hmm. and understand that and what you actually were responsible for and be able to tell that story well. Um, the lessons you learned, the things you would do differently, Um, things that went right went wrong all that sort of stuff pull as many lessons as you can from that I also think that that person should be watching the rest of the organization and other organizations and kind of like understanding what is going well and what's not and drawing lessons from them so that they can tell observational stories as well I would I'd very much recommend people do this because I think it's a very quick way to get out of I'm not ready Um, Mode, which is if you can understand why someone could be or won't be successful from afar, you probably are able to at least be able to navigate the situation that you find yourself in to sell someone that you're ready uh, is a little bit different. And I think that what you've got to be really blunt about is, Hey, I've got a couple of gaps and here's what I plan to do about them. Um, Or, you know, what I would need to be supported by to do that. And are these concerns for you? See if they're deal breakers or not, and then the other is just to put it back on them and ask them, what do you think success looks like here? What do you think goes wrong here? What, or what, you know, what, what do you want to see changed in the organization or the, or the department or the division? And if they don't have a clear answer to that, that's also a red flag on another side of the fence, which is they don't actually know what they're looking for either. So um, put it back and ask that question. And then lastly, I think if you want to really shine in interviews, is uh, engineers and engineering leaders, particularly um, younger or earlier in the career, tend to be less um, projective, I think. Like we, we talked about it depends and they'll say the it depends answer, but they won't say the it depends and then give an opinion or give a specific example. And I think you have to give specific examples. And then once you give the specific examples, be able to support it with why it was successful or why it went wrong. And if you can't do that, you're not ready for the job. If you can do that, you still might not be ready for the job, but at least you're ready to interview for the job.
0: Yeah, no, that's 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 great advice. I think uh, we've we've heard this this theme over and over again that uh, you know as much as it may sometimes get dismissed in in engineering circles, like storytelling is important, right? At some point, you're you're trying to help people change. You're part of change. You know, being able to do that, being able to. Uh, you know, synthesize, um, you know, big concepts down into smaller things is, is super important. And uh, yeah, I think you're right. I think you you have to be able to sort of look yourself in the mirror and be like, am I ready? You know, you, you may think you're ready for this, but, you know, can you can you kind of, you know, pass some basic tests of being like, yeah, no, I, I am really ready. I, I've proven it to myself. I've, I'm ready to go see if if the world thinks I'm ready for it. No, that's, that's super good advice. Jason, I want to, I want to, uh, thank you so much for the time today. This has been great. I know we went in a lot of different directions, but, uh, I'm really appreciative of you sharing all your background, your experience, your advice. Um, if uh if folks kind of want to, you know, obviously you're super busy, you're getting pitched all the time at, at uh, Redpoint, but like if folks were, you know, wanted to reach out to you, what's a, what's a good place where you're kind of discussing things with people? Is it is it Slack? Is it Twitter? What, what are where are you uh kind of sharing your thoughts and and uh, experiences?
1: Yeah, the easiest way to get in touch with me these days is Twitter. My DMs are open. You can always give me that way. Um nice. and then uh you know, Jason at Redpoint is my email address.
0: Awesome. 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 Well, listen again, thank you so much, folks. We're going to wrap it up there. I want to thank Jason so much for his time today. Uh, We want to thank everybody for for listening, for continuing to tell a friend about the show and helping us to grow the community and uh, giving us feedback, uh, you know, on all the different ways that you watch podcasts and listen to podcasts. With that, we're going to wrap it up and we will talk to you next week. Thank you for listening to The Cloudcast. Please visit thecloudcast.net to find more shows, show notes, videos, and everything social media.